0: Chapter 17 of Thomas Hobbes Leviathan begins part two of the work and it's titled of the causes generation and definition of a Commonwealth. So all the things that he's been discussing up to that point in setting out the human condition and thinking about, you know, how we can get ourselves out of a state that we don't want to be in into a state that we do want to be in is, is being brought to a crux here and the answer to the problems is going to be what he will call the sovereign by the end of the chapter. And so there's a bit of, you could say, review, sort of, you know, rehearsing the the basic argument that's being done early on in the chapter about the human condition. And this is going to lead through to having this sort of answer to the fundamental question. So he tells us that human beings naturally love liberty and dominion over others, and that's already a bit problematic, right? We all want to have our own freedom. We want to enjoy the rights that we have in a state of nature where we get to do anything that our own desires or aversions lead us to. And yet some of those would conflict with those of others. Not only do we have the issue of competition where we both want the same thing, but I might interfere with somebody else as well in other ways. And, you know, I have to anticipate their reactions. They're anticipating my reactions but we also like to dominate each other. We like to be higher up than others. And so it's not simply a matter of, you know, economic competition or something like that. There is a psychological dynamic that makes things particularly conflict prone. So he begins by saying, the final cause and or design of men who naturally love liberty and dominion over others in the introduction of that restraint upon themselves in which we see them live in commonwealths. So we've already got two things there. What is that restraint? Well, the recognition of the laws of nature that he sketched out in two previous chapters. Those articulate what the restraint would look like. And he goes on and then says, uh, is the foresight of their own preservation and of a more contented life thereby, that is to say of getting themselves out from that miserable condition of war, which is necessarily consequent to the natural passions of men when there is no visible power to keep them in awe. So in that very first paragraph, we've got So much being referred to, so much going on without some visible or, as he said in earlier chapters, common power to enforce the rules, to enforce the laws of nature and to keep people from following their passions. And also, he says to tie them by fear of punishment to the performance of their covenants and observation of those laws of nature, we're not going to have what it is that we want, self-preservation and an enjoyable life in which we can count on keeping our property. Or if we spend the time to learn things, we can actually apply them. So this is the human condition. And how do we get out of it? Well, there's a possibility that maybe we could just sort of associate with each other. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's go on and talk about the laws of nature part. He says, the laws of nature of themselves without the terror of some power to cause them to be observed are contrary to our natural passions that carry us to partiality, pride, revenge, and the like. So that's a problem, right? Laws of nature, we can recognize them by reason. We can say they bind, as Hobbes uh, has told us, in foro, interno, inside of ourselves. But to get people to follow them when they go against our natural passions, we need some sort of enforcement mechanism. He also tells us that covenants without the sword are but words and of no strength to secure a man at all. So... That's a problem too. I make agreements with you that go beyond the laws of nature, although there is that law of nature. Third one, that if we make covenants, we observe them, we, we keep them with other people without some sort of authority figure, some sort of executive functions, some sort of what is he's gonna call it later on, magistrate who can exert force and punish, people are not going to keep their agreements even if they enter into them intending to because their reasonings and their passions are gonna lead them to do other things. They're gonna cut corners. They're gonna make exceptions for themselves. They'll make excuses. Oh, it's only this one time. And if we do that, if we allow that to happen, things are gonna break down. So how do we move past this? This is really the central question. And he tells us that, uh, there's one other little note that I wanna bring in here. He mentions that there are places where people have lived by small families and they are, following laws of honor, but not the actual laws of, uh, not the natural laws. They followed what he calls the law of nature, which is just to, if you, know, if you think about the, the first one, if you don't have some sort of authority figure, if you don't have some sort of decider, well then look out for yourselves and maybe look out for your family. So this is another depiction of the state of nature. We could have a multitude, as he says, and he uses that term deliberately. A multitude is a bunch of people gathered together. Couldn't we have some sort of order spontaneously arise maybe through customs and institutions that allows them to function as a society without any? Political authority, he says, It is not the joining together of a small number of people that gives security. In small numbers, small addition on the one side or the greater. Make the advantage of strength so great as is sufficient to carry the victory. What if we have a bigger multitude to protect us from outside sources, right? That might try to take our stuff The multitude sufficient to confide in our security is not determined by any certain number, but by comparison with the enemy we fear, and is then sufficient when the odds of the enemy are not uh, of so visible and conspicuous moment to determine the event of war. But he says, even if there was a massive multitude, if their actions be directed according to their particular judgments, if each person is deciding for themselves and particular appetites, they can expect thereby no defense nor protection against a common enemy. So people might come in from the outside, people who are not in your whatever tribe, group, and they'll try to take your stuff. Because, you know, this is the human condition. Even if you can organize a defense against them, you still have another problem. As Hobbes goes on, he says that this multitude not only can't protect you against a common enemy, nor against the injuries of one another. Being distracted in opinions concerning the best use and application of their strength, they don't help but hinder each other and reduce their strength by mutual opposition to nothing. When there is no common enemy, they make war upon each other. And so this is a big problem, isn't it? He also goes on and he says, listen, if you could just have a whole bunch of people get together and produce a functioning society without any political authority over them, We'd already see that, that would be happening. That would take place. And this is kind of an interesting argument that that he's making, right? So agreement and performance and peace isn't something that will just occur, or happen on its own. And then he's got this interesting comparison between us and bees. Now he says, Aristotle called bees and ants. They're political creatures because they live sociably with one another. And you know, they're basically like us, they're meat machines. They have passions and appetites. They can work well together. Why can't we? And he says, we're different than those. First, we're in competition for honor and dignity. Ants and bees don't care about that sort of thing. Second, among these creatures, the common good doesn't differ from the private. Another big difference with us, but here's a really important one, the third. These creatures having not as man the use of reason do not see or think they see any fault in the administration of their common business. Whereas human beings, this is one of the things that rationality does, in fact, make possible for us. And it doesn't have to be in terms of like the political organization. Think about any enterprise that human beings do. There's always somebody who's like, I think you could have done that better. I I should be in charge or you should take advice from me. I mean, I can't think of how many comments I have on videos of people who've never done a thing like that in their life who know all about how I should be doing videos, right? And they come in with a steady stream, enough that I actually created a a response video for people who were giving unwanted advice. This is a dynamic of human nature, according to Hobbes, right? He also says these creatures, though they have some use of voice, they want that art of words by which some men can represent to others that which is good in the likeness of evil and evil in the likeness of good. And so, you know, we can use language to conceal, to to lie, to manipulate, and and they don't do that with, with each other. He says also irrational creatures can't distinguish between injury and damage. And so they're not that offended with other members of their own species. And lastly, he says the agreement to these creatures is natural. That of men is by covenant only, which is artificial. We're going to come back to that in, in a moment. So what are our prospects then? Hobbes says, well, you know, we could erect a sovereign and this is different than having a multitude. He says, the only way to erect such a common power that we you know we can get what we want is to confer all their power and strength upon one man or upon one assembly of men that may reduce all their wills by plurality of voices into one will. Which is as much to say to appoint one man or assembly of men to bear their person and every one to own and acknowledge himself to be the author of whatsoever he that so beareth their person shall act or cause to be acted. In those things which concern the common peace and safety, and here's another key thing, therein to submit their wills, everyone to his will and their judgments to his judgment. So we establish an authority who is above us. And they, although they were from us, one among us, they're in a privileged position. We take what they say as being the final determination. We allow their will to become our will, and if our wills conflict with them, then we have to knuckle under and find some way to, to agree with them. We reduce all of this multitude of jarring wills into one capital W will, you might say. And Hobbes thinks that this is rather distinctive. What this does is has each of us, here's where we get the social contract theory. We all covenant with each other. He says, this is more than consent or concord. It is a real unity of them all in one and the same person made by covenant of every man with every man in such manner as if every man should say to every man. Now notice as if they should say. I authorize and give up my right of governing myself to this man or to this assembly on this condition that you give up your right to him and authorize all his actions in like manner. This is the social contract. We all agree with each other that we're going to give up certain of our rights, which include the right to make judgments about some things and to engage in opposition to the authority figure, the sovereign. And I do it because you're going to do it, too. So think about monopoly of force. We give the sovereign a monopoly on deadly force, and we say we're not gonna impose a deadly force upon each other except perhaps in very extreme circumstances like a home invasion, and I do it because you're gonna do it. I'm, I'm only doing it because you're gonna. That's how it works with this agreement. And as, as Hobbes says, this generates he calls this, this is a generation of that great Leviathan, or rather to speak more reverently, of that mortal God to which we owe under the immortal God our peace and defense. So it could be a single person. It could be a power structure, as we say. It could be an assembly, but there's going to be some sort of person or persons in charge. And that's what we call the sovereign. The last thing that we have to talk about is, and this goes back to the issue of nature, Hobbes then says, well, there's, there's actually two different ways in which this can happen, which is good for him in part because an immediate objection to his doctrine in most places would be, man, we never made any sort of agreement like this. What are you talking about? How are you saying that the king or the president or the premier or whoever, the mayor, why are they in charge? I didn't vote for them. They just happen to be there. And so Hobbes says there's two ways of attaining to this sovereign power. One is by what he calls natural force. This is different than the nature that he was talking about with bees and ants, where it's just their instincts or their programming or whatever we're going to say. Natural force is when somebody imposes force on somebody else. And one prime example of this is he says, if, if a person by war subdues their enemies to his will, giving them their lives on that condition. So you take over somebody's territory and you say, listen, I'll let you live, but you're going to do things my way. I'm the sovereign and you're kind of stuck with my will. It, it's in, according to Hobbes, their interest to, to go along with that. The other example of that, that he uses that some of you may say, well, that's, that's kind of strange sounding. He says, when a man maketh his children to submit themselves and their children to his government as being able to destroy them, if they refuse. Now that's some, pretty interesting child rearing there. So, you know, make of that what you will. But the idea is that within the family, the the patriarch, or it could be a matriarch, whoever it's going to be, has power over the the children and then their children. And it it goes on from, from there. The other way is in the manner that he's just talked about, right? He talks about men agreeing amongst themselves to submit to some man or assembly of men voluntarily on confidence to be produced by him against all others. This can be called a political commonwealth or commonwealth by institution. And that's what what Hobbes is primarily going to be focused on in in this, although he does, you know, leave a lot of scope for uh, commonwealth by acquisition, as he says. And we we should come back to this thing as well was there ever at any time for most people, a social contract, you know, like those of us who are born into societies that have been around for a long time. Did we actually engage in this sort of thing saying, I authorize and give up my right of government? No, no. But he says it's as if every person should say, so this is set in a kind of hypothetical or you could say it's an implicit agreement. Hobbes thinks of authority within functioning civil societies as working more or less this way, that we, in order to get the things that we want, we have to recognize the authority of the sovereign. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.